This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. This morning's scripture reading can be found on page 811 of your Pew Bibles. It is the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Again, page 811. Chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that you have spoken. God, would you give us ears to hear this morning? Would you fill us with a spirit of revelation, of grace? God, as we open your word, would you conform us into the image of your son? God, and would you move among us this morning? Would you strike our hearts with the glory of who you are, what you're like, God, would you make us more like yourself? God, would you give a spirit of grace upon the speaking and the hearing of the word this morning? And would you orient all of our lives around the things that you say are good and right and whole and leading to life? God, would you have glory this morning? We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. So if you are uh, new or visiting with us this morning, we are about three months into uh, a time in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, I have a review for you on the notes there, but I'm not going to touch it. So uh, you're going to feel like you're just jumping into a conversation that's already been happening. I'm sorry about that, but I've got a ton to cover this morning, and I have a you know, propensity to go a little long. So we're going we're gonna to run right into Roman numeral number two and just jump straight into our text this morning and look at what Jesus lays out here for us as it relates to forgiveness. So Jesus' statement on forgiveness, which comes at the end of this teaching that he's given on uh, the model prayer, it demonstrates for us the essential nature of this practice in the life of a disciple. Right, like Jesus doesn't mince words here. This is a remarkably uh, in-your-face kind of statement. He says, if you forgive other people, your heavenly Father will forgive you. And if you don't, he won't forgive you. Right? And I'm not going to do a big uh, uh, move around here up this morning to try to make that say something other than it says. This is intended to be right in your face and uh, elevate for us the reality of how important walking in forgiveness is for a disciple of Jesus. Now we're going to walk through what the order of that is and how this isn't Jesus hinging your salvation on a condition, but it is demonstrating that those who are forgiven express forgiveness. 
There is no other way about it. And so Jesus puts front and center as these practices that we are to pursue to align our hearts with the things that he calls good, forgiveness. However, the practice of forgiveness does not often shape the lives of those who follow Jesus in the manner that he demonstrates in this commandment. Now, I think this is because we all intrinsically know there is a massive problem with forgiveness, or forgiveness poses a real significant problem. Ask any two-year-old who's had their toy taken away from them, what needs to happen when you are wronged? right? Everybody knows when you're wronged, something needs to be done about it. Somebody needs to pay for this. Somebody needs to be brought to account, right? And forgiveness poses this remarkable problem of what do we do with the glaring reality that sin has real effects, real hurts, real pains. It does real destruction, real costs, What is to be done with that? And we are fearful often to walk in forgiveness because we think that it means we'll make light of sin, lose the ability to be vindicated, or that we'll continue to suffer under the weight of the effects of sin, right? So the idea of forgiveness poses a really big problem to us. Letter D, there's two misguided models, I think that are offered often to us for forgiveness. And each of these models possesses a partial truth, right? Like if there's two elements that are needed for real forgiveness or what the Bible presents as forgiveness, each of these models highlights one of them, but at the expense of the other, and they, they leave us falling short of what it means to walk out and practice forgiveness. The first model that we're often given would be, uh, I have no better way to say it than like the unconditional model. Meaning this is like the making light of, of, of the wrong, right? You, you forgive and forget. We just ask somebody to like forgive, forgive us, forget about it. Uh, it highlights the importance of forgiveness, but doesn't recognize any of the severity of sin or the devastating effects that it has on people, right? We may try to convince each other that the, the other person meant well, but what if they didn't? Right? What if they didn't mean well? What if in the hardness of their hearts they actually meant to harm you? What if they meant to break relationship? What if they, in the stubbornness or the selfishness of their own soul, meant to cause a fracture there? What do you do in that situation? The like, sweep it under the rug, forgive and forget, just move on and don't make a big deal about it? We all know that model doesn't really have the weight to walk out forgiveness together. That's one model that could be offered to us. The second model is probably way more prevalent in our world today. You could call this the exact payment model. The model is really prevalent. It's built around naming truth as it is, around vindication, around punishment. Now, the only model for forgiveness in this way of thinking about it is that the offender adequately suffers prior to offering forgiveness. Now, we all know what this is, right? Like, this is what is so prevalent in our cultural moment. 
right? Someone has wronged my ability to flourish in the world or whatever I perceive as flourishing in the world. And what I'm going to do is exact some kind of payment against them. And until they feel the devastating effects of suffering the consequence for their sin, I cannot offer forgiveness to them. This poses a massive problem though. It does emphasize the severity of sin, but it's often unclear as to what constitutes sufficient payment, right? Who gets to decide what's sufficient payment? Me? You? Right? Like, we don't do this, and we don't do it well. I'm slighted. I want total revenge, right? I'm not a good judge of what sufficient payment is in situations where I've been wronged. I don't know if anybody else is in that situation. I know I am, right? You cut me off in traffic, way more severe repayment than that small little thing would really require. We make light of that in fun situations. But we all feel that, right? Who gets to decide what sufficient payment is Who gets to enact it, right? Do you have, do I have the wisdom and the the goodness and the truthfulness and the commitment to justice enough to enact vengeance in accordance with that wrong, right? So we're offered these models of, How do we move forward? And I think both of them fall short of what the Bible would offer us here. So look at the top of page two. So any discussion that we have on the nature of forgiveness in the kingdom of heaven requires that we begin with the understand for why we need forgiveness or what forgiveness is. In other words, to rightly understand what it is and how to practice it, we have to understand why it is necessary. Letter B, in the scriptures, the concept of forgiveness is not ever situated horizontally first. It's always situated vertically first, right? So we can't get to what Jesus is asking of us here or commanding of us here or inviting us to here before we understand where the Bible starts with forgiveness, which is never horizontal between me and you. It's always vertical between me and God and you and God. So let's paint that picture. Let's actually fly over what the Bible teaches here. God exists eternally in perfect and holy communion with himself. He's eternally one God who is uh, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. His life, the life of the Trinity, is one of infinite holiness, glory, satisfaction, joy, peace, truth, goodness. You name the abundant delight that is his person and it falls short of the reality. Okay? He is holy other than us and he exists in all of eternity self-satisfied in his own glory. And in that glory, he chose to make something. A creation in which he could demonstrate and put on display how glorious and holy he actually is. So as the creator, 
God now alone holds the right to define what is good or right within his creation. So if God is a creator, he gets to define reality. He gets to define something's purpose. And this is really going to be important for us because to sin is to transgress a purpose, right? Sin isn't just behaviors that we can put on a scale of how good they are or bad they are. To sin is to transgress a purpose. Who gets to define purpose? God, the creator, the one in charge. He gets to define reality, purpose, and the goal of something, which means he then gets to define what's missing or how to miss that goal, what it means, how severe that is, all of those things. Letter D, the Bible then teaches that mankind is created in God's image. That's in Genesis chapter one, in order that we might live in communion with him and express his glory throughout the earth. So if you don't know what you were created for, that's the sentence right there. You were created to live in communion with God and to express his nature and his glory in all of the earth. That's the purpose that you were created for. This created purpose lies at the heart of every discussion of mankind, of sin, or our need for forgiveness. So our relationship with the triune God, receiving from his infinite glory, receiving from his goodness, receiving from his truth, was to define every other relationship that we have in creation. Relationship with ourselves, relationship with others, even relationship with the creation itself. So this relationship was to be expressed ultimately through love and humble trust, which is demonstrated in obedience, right? So don't miss this. You were created for a purpose. Your purpose was to commune with God and to express his glory in creation. You express his glory by submitting to his ways in love and in humble trust. And that gets demonstrated through what is called obedience. Okay? That's why you were made. You were made to live in communion with God, to demonstrate his glory, and to obey him as expression of your love and your trust of him. Now, the inverse can be said. To disobey God's commands then is to express hatred for him and distrust of his character. Don't miss this. This really, really, really matters. If we were created to commune with God and express his glory in love and in humble trust through obedience, then disobedience isn't just um, messing up. It's not just like uh, being a little bad or you, your intentions got misunderstood or you, you went the wrong way. It is hatred for God. Disobedience, the Bible declares, is hatred for God, for our creator, for the one who made us and gets to define what it means to be in accordance with who we are. This is what the Bible defines as sin. So this is, this is what we are talking about when we talk about sin. Sin is not just behaviors. I really want you to catch that. Sin is not some ledger 
of like you did more bad things than good things. Sin is a fundamental reality where we have severed ourselves from relationship with God and disobeyed his commands. We have transgressed the purpose for which he created us. Look at letter G. So throughout the scripture, the reality of sin is described in many ways, pictures, images, analogies. However, as it relates to our passage and the need of forgiveness, there are two particular ways that emphasize the need to be forgiven. So look at, if you've shut your Bible, take it back out, open it back up, put your eyes on Matthew chapter six. We see two concepts put here that Jesus lays out in this, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount as he's teaching here. And this really matters, the two concepts that he gives because they're fundamental for understanding forgiveness. The first is sin is like a debt. Look at verse 12. This is in the prayer. As Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he puts this line into the prayer and tells them, uh, forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So the first concept we have of sin here is sin is like a debt. The scriptures invite us to see that sin is like incurring some kind of debt. When the Bible speaks of it in these terms, it's not speaking of monetary debt, though that could be a part of it, but as a spiritual debt, meaning there was something that was owed to God by us, and we did not pay it. That's perfect obedience. Submitting our lives to him in love and humble trust. When we disobey, we are now indebted what was owed to him as the creator of all things has not been paid. So we are now in debt. That's what we're getting at here. The nature of sin violates the one that's sinned against as though it takes something from them that was owed them. This requires repayment. Okay? So here we are. One way the Bible talks about sin in this context, particularly as it relates to forgiveness, is sin is like a debt. We have worked in disobedience and accrued a debt that has to be repaid. This is true of us before God, and we all know the feel of this in how we relate to one another, right? So when we sin, we had owed something to someone, we did not do it, and now we are in debt to them. There's this debt that must be repaid. The second thing we see here is Jesus demonstrates that sin is like a transgression. Look at uh, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive yours. So he changes the word there, right? At the beginning, it's debt. It's this thing that has to be repaid. But now he speaks of it like a trespass, something that we have uh, actively done to another. The scriptures invite us to see sin as breaking or violating the good order of God's creation. The idea of transgression is not just a debt that's incurred, right? Something that has to be repaid, but something has now become broken and has to be healed or restored, right? So you've got two categories here of how Jesus defines sin. It's a debt that has to be repaid, 
and a transgression or a trespass that has to be healed or restored. It's something that's been broken or fractured or stained and there has to be a healing that is brought to that place in order for there to be wholeness. So the Bible is clear. Look at letter H. Clear and unapologetic that every single person, every single one of us is guilty of such debt and such transgression before the holy and righteous God. There is no one who has lived up to the purpose for which we were created, both by our nature, meaning we were born into the domain of sin. We are by nature separated from God and his ways. That is the reality of how we are born and we have sinned by choice. So actively we have all chosen to walk in a way that is outside of God's designs. Look at letter I. I, I, want, I hope this lands or makes sense. Most of us, however, I think struggle to connect to the severe nature of our sinfulness before God. I think this is because we've exchanged an understanding of our purpose in our contemporary moment. Right? So if your purpose is to live in communion with God and to express his glory in the earth, then to transgress that or to not accomplish that is fundamental uh, sin before God's face. However, we've changed in our contemporary moment of what the purpose of mankind is. Right? What do we exist for? So many of us have ingested this idea that we exist to actualize ourselves or fulfill ourselves or make good on who we are. Right? So sin has changed from transgressing, not living in communion with God and expressing his glory to sin has become in our cultural moment when you or I keep each other from fulfilling ourselves. Right? So we can then evaluate, I'm not really that bad. I haven't done that many bad things. I haven't really hurt anyone. I haven't gone uh, against who they're trying to be. I let them be who they are. That's what we see as sin. And actually, if you go look at our cultural waters, the things that people get punished for in our societal moment are things that get... Uh, at the, at the root of transgressing what we think that purpose is, right? So when, when someone keeps an individual from actualizing who they think they are, there is no f more fundamental wrong in our world at this moment. Payment has to happen for that, right? So we have a hard time coming up under how bad we really are because we have changed the purpose for which we were created, and exchange that. Look at the top of page three. So we're all in this spot together, right? We've all sinned against God. We've all sinned against one another. And we all know that a debt has to be rep repaid or punished and a transgression has to be restored, healed. How does that happen? The Bible calls us to look full face at the reality of sin. We, we, don't, we don't get to close our eyes at it. We don't get to like pretend it doesn't exist. 
The Bible actually calls us to look full face at the reality of sin, the severity of sin, the effects of sin in our lives and in the world. Now, because we can neither pay back the debt that we've incurred by our sin, nor work to bring restoration from the violations we've enacted on the world, the Bible declares that every one of us deserves an eternal punishment of separation from God in accordance with his justice. That's the right thing. Right? If we transgress the purpose for which we were created and we cannot pay the debt back and we cannot restore or heal the violation that we have caused, what do we deserve? We deserve to be judged for that. Right? We deserve justice to be enacted in the place of those wrongs against us. And the Bible invites us to see that the way that that would happen is through separation from God eternally. Yet God in his great mercy and his great kindness has made a way to offer forgiveness that both provides a way for him to forgive us and make uh, without making light of sin or its effects in the world. Again, this is different. I hope you catch this, the models that I talked about earlier. God actually accomplishes a way by which to forgive sin and satisfy justice. We're going to talk about how he does that. Through the death of Jesus, God provides a way of forgiveness and a way of salvation to any and all who will receive it by faith. So any and all who will look upon Jesus by faith, God has provided a way to offer forgiveness that doesn't just sweep sin under the rug and it doesn't exact the payment in a way that you could never repay. He provides a way for us to be brought back into relationship with him, forgiven and restored. Look at how this happens. Number one, God in Christ Jesus at the cross cancels the debt that was owed because of sin. That's Colossians 2.14. It says he canceled the debt. He looked at Jesus on the cross and he said, I'm going to get rid of the debt that was owed by those who had transgressed against me and who sinned and fell short of my glory. I cancel it away. The debt that you could not repay, which again, remember, what was the debt? Perfect obedience. Every moment of your life, every thought, every word, every deed, perfect submission to God in, in love and humble trust that we could not pay back. He canceled the debt. The second thing he does is he pays the ransom or the redemption price for our debt. So he cancels the debt, but he actually pays it back himself. This is unbelievable. He wipes it off the table and he pays it. He doesn't look at you and tell you to pay it because you never could. He pays it himself. He lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. And God in Christ Jesus looks at him and says, if you look at him by faith, I will count his obedience as sufficient for your disobedience. I will count his righteousness as sufficient for where you were unrighteous. He pays the ransom price, the redemption for the debt that we incurred. The scriptures say that in Christ, at his death, God offers forgiveness by the spilling of Christ's blood. 
Number four, he bears God's wrath as a substitution. That's Romans 3 and 1 John 1. The fancy biblical word that gets used there is propitiation. It just means a sacrifice that uh, placated or appeased God's wrath. That was done in Christ Jesus. And lastly, this really matters for forgiveness as well. In the death of Jesus, Jesus was qualified to accomplish all of God's restoration. That he would accomplish the restoration of all things. He was qualified to fulfill that. So the scripture is clear to show that the forgiveness of God does not come at the expense of justice. At the cross of Jesus, God sufficiently punishes or pays for or empties out his wrath upon Jesus for sin in order that he might express his gracious mercy and forgiveness towards those who look to him. Look at these two verses here. Romans 3. God put forth Jesus as a propitiation. There's that word. Just It means he placated or appeased God's wrath to be received by faith. Verse 26. This was to show his righteousness at the present time. Why did he do it this way? Paul tells us. So that he might be just. Meaning he's not sweeping sin under the rug and just pretending it doesn't exist. He's actually fulfilling his justice and he can justify those who have faith in Jesus, meaning forgive them and bring them into relationship with him. He does this, 2 Corinthians 5, by making Jesus the one who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become in him the righteousness of God. So we see clearly here that God doesn't turn a blind eye to the effects of sin, the severity of sin, or the need of justice. He lays this upon his own son and provides the way in himself. The Bible does not invite us to either forgive and forget model or the exact repayment model. It presents us to a model that is profoundly costly. He's so costly that it cost God his son. That's the model given to you in the scriptures. Okay, that's the foundation. We have to have that foundation. Now let's talk about what Jesus is getting at here when he calls us to be a forgiving people. Look at Roman numeral five. This lays the necessary framework for understanding Jesus' teaching here. However, the statement presents another problem for us. Letter B, does this commandment teach that God's forgiveness of us is conditional on our forgiveness of others? Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 18 with me. To understand the statement requires that we interpret the commandment with the rest of scripture. Later in Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable that's clearly an expansion of the commandment here in the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to read it. This is going to be in Matthew 18 verses 21 and following. Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And Peter's super proud of himself right now, okay? Because he's going, it would be ludicrous to get sinned against seven times in a day and forgive the person. So he's like patting himself on the back and Jesus is about to take him to school. 
Jesus says to him, I don't say to you seven, but 77 times. And then he's going to tell him a story of why. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven might be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him that owed 10,000 talents. Give you a picture of this. A talent was possibly, possibly a day laborer could make a talent worth in a year's uh, of work, a year's worth of work, right? So 10,000 years worth of work at the regular going rate. So if you take that today, you got, you know, let's say $40,000. This is $400 billion. Just get this in your mind, how big this debt is. Hey, work for me for 10,000 years and we'll pay it off. That's, I want you to feel the weight of this, okay? This is insane how much this is. And since he could not pay, obvious statement, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Which again, it's literally impossible for this guy to pay him back. It's literally impossible. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. This is like five bucks. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. In the parable, Jesus demonstrates that one of the clearest ways that we express the reality of our own forgiveness or our own forgiveness of a debt that we could never repay is that we practice forgiveness towards others from the heart. It's important that we understand that our forgiving others does not earn God's forgiveness. This is, this is uh, outside of what the Bible teaches, right? The Bible is not saying this earns God's forgiveness for you. This is how you get God's forgiveness. How you get God's forgiveness is you lay hold of it by faith alone. You look to Jesus and to Jesus alone and you experience the unmerited favor of God in Christ Jesus. What Jesus is getting at and what, what we need to be kind of hit in the face with though is the demonstration, he does not mince words, that one of the clearest ways that we express our forgiveness is being a forgiving people. That we, having experienced the scandalous mercy of God in Christ Jesus that we could never pay back, 
we extend that forgiveness to others. Look with me at the top of page four. So what I want to do is define for you what I think forgiveness is and give you just a handful of ideas to help you practice forgiveness. Because what Jesus is saying here is not difficult to comprehend. It's really hard to do. It's really hard to do. So I think forgiveness is this. I think forgiveness is relinquishing the right that you have to exact repayment for a debt that's incurred by sin. So someone sins against you and they are now indebted to you. You relinquish the right to personally enact vengeance back upon them and incur, like, uh, get repayment for that. And you release them from bearing the responsibility to heal or bring trans- or restoration to the place that was transgressed. Does that make sense? If they are indebted and they have transgressed, forgiveness is when you look at someone and you relinquish the right that you have to get the payment back and for them to heal that place, to expect them to heal it. To practice such forgiveness requires a lot of things as we seek to cooperate with God's grace. I'm gonna give you several ideas and they can help us conceptualize what it means to step towards practicing forgiveness, but this will not make it easy. This is really costly. And this is a really, really difficult aspect of discipleship. We need the Holy Spirit here. I just want to say that really clearly. You need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. If we are going to walk in forgiveness, this is empowered by God's grace. We can't do this in our own strength. But these ideas might help you plot this out as you seek to practice this in your life. Letter C, forgiveness first requires that we experience the magnitude of being forgiven. Many of us struggle to offer true forgiveness from the heart because we do not regularly experience the magnitude of our forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Many of us believe that we're better than we actually are, and we struggle to not minimize our own sinfulness and need for forgiveness, right? We all walk around wanting to do this, We want to make ourselves better than we actually are and others worse than they are, right? We want to turn the dial up on the wrongs of others and turn it down on ours. We want to justify ourselves and make ourselves feel better. We're not so bad. We're not such bad people. We have to come face to face with the immensity of the debt that we owed. And until we experience the unmerited favor of God in Christ Jesus that pays the debt that we could never pay, we cannot actually forgive from the heart, right? So we need to ask God again and again and again and again. Forgiveness is not like a one and done thing in the economy of Christ, right? Like I I prayed a prayer one time and then I never think about that I needed the grace of God again. We ask him over and over and over and over again, God, would you remind me 
of the debt that I owed? Would you make me see it? And then would you show me how you were sufficient to pay that back, to cancel that, to, to forgive me in the place where I was your enemy? Would you open my eyes to experience that? This is what Jesus gets at when he talks about the one that's uh, forgiven much, loves much. Right? How do we have a tender heart in the place of loving God and loving others? We experience the magnitude of what it means to be forgiven in Christ. That's a place we have to start. This, again, takes the work of the Spirit. Ask God regularly, show me the, the depths of my sin and the immensity of your forgiveness. There's a, a pastor that oftentimes will say, hey, people need to remember regularly, you are way worse than anyone could ever know. And you are way more loved than you could ever hope for. Right? These things are both true. And we can't just have those as like statements that we say. They need to be realities that get ingested into us. We will never be a forgiving people unless we encounter that reality. That's number one. Number two, we have to see forgiveness as an issue of obedience. This is an issue of obedience. This means that to pursue walking in a regular practice of forgiveness towards others actually demonstrates our faith in Jesus. Remember, I've, I've been saying this week in and week out here. Faith looks like something. Faith is boots on the ground. It looks like something. Faith is not just a cognitive idea that we, we state out into the, the, to the atmosphere, right? Like this is real actions in, in, uh, in our lives. When we seek to forgive, we humbly seek to believe that we are forgiven, that God will be sufficient for us, and that he will ultimately bring forth justice. As we forgive, we show that we cannot exact repayment for the debt. This has to be paid back by God's justice anyway, right? When someone sins against you, do you think you could repay that? Right? Even if justice is served in our world, right? Say something atrocious has been done to you and that person gets locked up in jail. Has the debt been repaid? Has it? The answer is no, right? We have to believe that God in his justice will ultimately repay every single debt that has been incurred, either in judgment or it was paid for by Jesus on the cross. We humbly look. So when we relinquish our, our rights to enact that justice and we go, God, I'm going to trust you for that. We demonstrate that God is the only one who can bring true justice. And we demonstrate that God alone can heal and repair the damage done. That person can't repair it fully, right? They cannot repair the full measure of what was fractured because of sin. We look to a day, Advent, praise the Lord, right? This is why we celebrate Advent. We look to a day when God will make all things new in Christ, that he has 
provided a way of salvation, but we still live in a world that is marred by sin and brokenness and devastation. And we look for the day when he's going to heal every single wound that was inflicted by sin. Every one of them. That's what it means. So this is why it's an obedience issue. This demonstrates faith, right? For me to take the grip of having to enact vengeance and open my hand and tell the Lord, God, I'm going to forgive them. Would you help me forgive them? Would you help me not look to them to demand the right return? I'm going to look to you for that. That demonstrates belief and trust in him, in his ways, in his goodness. Okay, letter E. We have to understand that the difference, there is a difference between forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Now, these get kind of collapsed on each other. And this is, this is really hard as we navigate walking through the world as it continues to be uh, broken and remain strained until Jesus comes back. But in the gospel of Jesus, all three of these are offered to us. But Jesus only commands us here to forgive. And I think that's really important. Let me, let me define what these are for you. Now, all of these should be on the table for a Christian at all times, but we may not get them in this life. We may not get them all. Forgiveness, we, we've talked about it, relinquishing the rights, uh, re- releasing the person from responsibility to bring healing and restoration to that. Now, to forgive does not require that the other person repent. This is really hard. This is really hard. And I want you to notice that, right? Jesus does not say, forgive their trespasses when they're sorry enough. He doesn't say that. He just says, do this. Live this way. Forgive. Offer forgiveness. Open your hands up and relinquish the right that you have to exact justice in this moment. Forgive. This is important Because Jesus does not lay a condition for our forgiveness on anything that the other person does. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. That's actually really hard. That's really, really hard. And the Spirit of God will give grace as we seek to walk in this. But it is important to acknowledge that and name that, particularly in a world where we have conscripted the idea that exact like suffering and sorrow and chastisement has to be enacted in order for us to forgive. Jesus says, forgive, forgive. So the second thing is reconciliation. This is when a relationship is set at peace. So I think forgiveness can happen and a relationship not be restored because or reconciled, because reconciliation requires two parties, two parties to be at peace. So usually reconciliation requires repentance. Now there might be a situation where someone forgives and goes, you know, you might not be repentant enough. You might not have named it, but I'm going to forgive and we're going to live at peace together. And, and they do, but usually to be reconciled requires repentance Restoration is the final process or the final step in this. A relationship being restored means there's 
a, a renewal of trust and intimacy. There's an openness, a, an enjoyment of continuing to walk together. This is hard, but it's true. This doesn't mean it goes off the table, but I, this just shapes expectation. There are relationships that might be forgiven or reconciled that will not experience full restoration in this life. That's just a way of living in a broken world. That doesn't mean we don't seek to walk out forgiveness because that isn't fully mended, all of those things. Look, look with me at letter F. I'll end here. Forgiveness does not mean that we make light of sin. The scriptures actually outline processes to name sin and offenses, both inside the body, Matthew 18. The, the first part of Matthew 18 actually outlines how you deal with sin in the body of Christ, right? We go to a brother. They don't repent. There's no restoration. There's no reconciliation. We take someone with us. There's no reconciliation. There's no repentance. We tell it to the church. There is a process by which we still deal with sin. This isn't just sweeping it on the rug, forgetting it, forgiving and forgetting. There is a process to deal with it. And there's a process in the state. God has given the authorities above us actual authority to hold back sin, right? So if there's something that is done outside of the laws of the land, we can still utilize those uh, avenues as needed in order to name sin and see justice served in some ways. So this isn't saying sweep it under the rug or pretend it doesn't exist. This is saying, how do I hold on to my right to exact and enact justice in this moment? Right? There's still processes to name and to deal with sin. We can pursue walking in a spirit of forgiveness while we are walking out a process within these avenues. We also know, I want you to just catch this. We also do know that if these processes fail, or fall short in weakness. Hey, there will be times when the state fails us. There will be times when we don't walk the process out well. When that happens, we still can entrust our souls to God, to his ultimate justice that will be made known in all eternity. This is Romans chapter 12 where he says, hey, don't take vengeance into your own hands. Vengeance belongs to God. And he will enact true justice for all eternity, either by bringing justice for that wrong or by counting the sacrifice of Jesus sufficient for that wrong. And this is what invites us into being able to be a forgiving people, right? So we hold on to these, we seek to walk it out. And one of the things that I want you to just catch is that forgiveness is not like you do it one time, right? There's a process to it. There's real time. It's gonna be a wrestle in your soul. You're gonna have to move your heart back to that, your mind back to it. You're gonna have to offer it back up to the Lord again and again and again and again and ask him to empower you to walk in a spirit of forgiveness. But it, it is something that we do to demonstrate our faith 
in the truth of who God is and what he has done. Amen. Amen. We're going to move to communion now. Would you stand? I'm going to pray over us as we close. Then we'll respond together this morning. I'm going to pray for us in just a second, but as we do every single week, we're going, to, we're going to respond in several ways here. We're going to sing together. We're going to come to the table, and the, the table is this beautiful place where I'm going to even ask in a specific way this morning that God would remind us of the costliness of the forgiveness that he has extended to us in Christ, where we are all put on the same level playing field, that we have a debt we cannot pay back and there are wrongs that we can never heal. And that Jesus, by giving up his life, became qualified to pay back the debt, to cancel it, to restore all things, to bring healing where there was brokenness and violation because of sin. And we're gonna remember that. And if you believe in that, if you put your hope in that, if you look to Jesus and Jesus alone, by faith you're a Christian, we wanna invite you to come and take communion with us. The way we take communion is we tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle in the balcony and uh, gluten-free to my right, to your left. Uh, And then as we do every week, we've got ministers in the sanctuary that would love to pray with you or pray for you. If there are places in your own life right now where you're going, "This, this is really clear. Like what Jesus says here is really clear and I want to experience more of God's forgiveness in my life and here's a couple places where I am struggling to walk in forgiveness. Uh, One of the beautiful realities of what we get to do when we gather together is to stand with each other and ask God to move and work and empower us. And so we have people that would love to pray with you and pray for you. If there's places that you need to experience more of God's grace, his healing power, his empowering presence to forgive. And so I'm gonna pray for us. Servers, you're welcome to come forward uh, and then we'll respond in those ways. Father, we just look to you and to you alone right now. God, we thank you. We begin by thanking you that in Christ Jesus, you have provided for us a forgiveness that we could never have earned. Like like billions of dollars in debt, you looked at us just because of the pity and the compassion in your heart and the love in your heart and you extended your hand and forgave. God, I ask this morning, all across this room, would you, would you open our hearts to receive more awareness of, experience of, delight in the mercy of God in Christ Jesus that's been made known to us. God, would we, not one of us, walk out of this room thinking that we're better than we are, God, would you bring us face to face with the immensity of the debt that we owed and the sufficiency of the payment that you made in Christ Jesus.
God, even as we come to the table and we take the tangible expression, the tangible signifier of this reality, would you overwhelm us by your presence and minister to us in that place? God, and in in places in this room, I know that there are so many differing places where we have experienced the brokenness and the fallenness of this world, the sin that has been done, where there are real hurts, real wounds, real pain, real destruction has happened. God, I ask that you would help us to walk out our faith to you, our faith in you in this way, offering forgiveness. Would you soften us? Would you heal us? Would you restore us? I ask in Jesus' name, amen.